So I'm going to invite you now to turn to the third chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. And we are beginning this morning a brief, very brief, three-week series, sermon series entitled, Unto Us a Son is Given. And we get that banner from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We're now living on this side of that promise. The, the child has been born, the son has been given, the Christ has come, and his appearing has be, been the, the, really the climax of all of history. Jesus is to us the ultimate revelation and communication of the glory of the Father and the Father's great design. David Mathis, in his wonderful, some of you have been reading his wonderful Christmas devotional meditations, uh, he, he writes that even though we live uh, now in the era of the Messiah, he writes, it is good for us to rehearse in Advent the anticipation of God's ancient people in order to renew our appreciation, in order to renew our appreciation of what we now have in Christ. In other words, the, the purpose of Advent, these four Sundays prior to Christmas, is to put ourselves, to locate ourselves in the place of God's people before the birth of Christ. And we do that in spite of the fact that we already know the rich spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ on this side of Christ's birth. We do that because there's just something pleasant and refreshing and renewing about playing it out, playing it out in our minds and in our hearts over and over again. I, Maybe you go through this ritual of your favorite Christmas movies. Um, think about your favorite Christmas movie for a moment. How many times, how many years have you watched the same film? And what does watching that movie again and again, year after year, do for you? You, you know that George Bailey will be saved from disgrace by the love and generosity of the people of his town that he served so kindly. You, you know, you know that Buddy the Elf will find acceptance and love from his human father. <laughs> Everybody knows that. You know, get this one, you know that Betty Haynes will forgive Bob Wallace and General Waverly will receive the honor he is due. There's some blank stares now. <laughs> and of course, you know that Kevin McAllister will triumph over the sticky bandits and be reconciled to his family. We know it, but there is something about redemption. There is something about wrongs made right, justice fulfilled, offenses assuaged, Hurts forgiven, relationships restored, that in spite of knowing how it's going to turn out, we still find deep pleasure and satisfaction 
in seeing and hearing and rehearsing it again and again. And I believe that's the essence of the goodness of Advent. In order to renew our appreciation of what we know that we have now, today, and every day into the future in Christ Jesus. And that's our prayer, namely that our appreciation of all that we have today in union with Jesus would be renewed. Unto us a son is given. And for what? And to what end? What is it that we have today in Christ Jesus that deserves our highest appreciation? Well, today and the next two weeks, we're going to rehearse in our minds and hearts just a few of those things. And today we're going to start with what we see in here in Romans 3, verses 23 to 26. So I want to invite you to follow along. And again, if you are physically able, let's stand together. This is just an expression, again, of our reverence for God and our eagerness to hear all that he has communicated of himself. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's holy word. It is priceless treasure. Let's pray. We do acknowledge that your communication of yourself, O oh God, to us is a great gift. Thank you for revealing who you are Revealing your passion, your heart, revealing your will, revealing your wisdom, your love, your mercy, your glory in every conceivable way. And you've revealed it so perfectly. And you've revealed it so powerfully and particularly in the person and the work of your dearly loved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive of this revelation. We pray that all that you have done uh, through Christ would be renewed in its sweetness and preciousness to us today and every day. That you would get all the glory. That your people would be filled with all the joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure that you all are familiar with what it's like to be blamed for something. I will not go into specifics because that would take a long time. Uh, but perhaps it's even more familiar to you what it feels like to be blamed. 
for something. Blame is what we do when we attribute something to someone that is wrong. A wrong has been done. And a standard of rightness has been violated. Fault has been found and blame has been assigned. I'm at the point now in my life uh, where it seems that um, much of my wardrobe is made up of hand-me-downs from my sons because they have a lot cooler stuff. And uh, one one of my favorite hand-me-downs is a t-shirt that on the front of it says, wasn't me. Uh, It's a phrase in pidgin English from Hawaii that we used to talk that sums up a common framework for how we think and feel about blame. (laughs) Wasn't me. Uh, Our knee-jerk reaction to blame is the word justification. A wrong has been committed, but I didn't do it. A wrong has been committed, but it's not my fault. A wrong has been committed, and okay, it was me, but I have an excuse. I have a legitimate reason. We hate blame. Wasn't me. We hate being blamed. Why? Because to be exposed to having done something wrong, to falling short, to having failed means <laughs> means I have to pay. Um, payment is necessary for failure. Payment is necessary for things done wrong. Payment is necessary for falling short. And payment, besides its cost, is shameful. Let me do that again. <laughs> Payment is necessary for falling short. Payment, besides its cost, is shameful. And in fact, shame itself is part of the price that is paid for the blame. And the human, the wrong has been done, someone must pay, and the human heart, since All the way back to Genesis chapter 3, fears above all things, the feeling of shame of being blamed. And for reason of this fear, we cover things, we hide things, we, we, we justify things, we excuse things. Such is the ripple effect, the crippling effect of guilt and shame over falling short, and such is the human condition. And loved ones, to us, the Son is given to address this condition. And my purpose today is to show you from this text what God has done to resolve the problem of guilt and shame and the fear of blame. My aim is to point you to a Savior who justifies sinners. And my purpose is that your fears of blame and shame would be relieved and that you would rightly and gladly exult in the Son who is given to you for that purpose. So with the rest of my time, I'm going to draw your attention to to these things. Five things about justification. The necessity of justification. 
the gift of justification, the price of our justification, the instrument of our justification, and the glory of justification. I know I did those fast, so you'll get them again, but necessity, gift, price, instrument, and glory. So first, the necessity of justification. There is a common need each and every one of us shares. There's no exceptions. We all need justification. We all need to be justified because we have all sinned and fall short of what is right and therefore deserve blame. According to Romans 3.23, it says, All have sinned and, present tense verb, fall short of the glory of God. Continue to fall short of the glory of God. That, That is, we're all blameworthy. There are no exceptions. And one of our strategies of self-justification is to say, wasn't me. It's him. Or it's her. Or it's there. There's the real problem. Not here. I had joined the staff of a church in Burnsville, Minnesota, several years ago. And we moved into a new neighborhood, which, <laughs> which uh, sometimes for a pastor presents challenges. Ah, nice to meet you. You know, welcome to the neighborhood. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, nice. <laughs> and uh, one of our neighbors, we'll, we'll just we'll call them Jim and Jan. Okay, that's not their real names, but uh, Jim and Jan, they had been very polite, somewhat aloof. You know, um, our kids went to the same school, and one of our boys uh, became good friends with their son, and our paths would cross uh, frequently in the neighborhood, but, but it took five years of living next door to one another before Jim and Jan, not their real names, mind you, but Jim and Jan dropped their guard and began to relate to us as friends. And and in the end, we became very good friends. And I remember the day, not the date, I never get dates right, I guess, but it was Memorial Day. And the neighborhood was empty except for us and Jim and Jan's family. And, and we decided to have a picnic together. And over burgers in the backyard, this is after five years, Jim says to me, you know, when you guys moved into the neighborhood and you said you were a pastor, I thought, oh, God, no. It's <laughs> exactly what he said. And, um, but we've come to trust you. We don't feel ashamed around you. You know, I, I got some questions. Great. You, you are the aerospace engineer, but fire away. And Jim says to me, why is God so ticked off about sin? That was a nice softball. And, um, but... 
Um, but I just failed miserably with my response. I, I launched into this, you know, we, we, we launched into this afternoon-long talk. And, and you know, th- there are certainly way better, clearer explanations in mine. But, but our, our talk went something like this. I, I said, I believe that God is ticked because sin has to do with falling short of his glory. That means that that the Bible reveals God to be infinitely glorious. He's infinitely good. He's infinitely wise and infinitely powerful and infinitely beautiful. He is infinitely right. That's where we get the word righteous. There's just none like him. And in fact, for God to be righteous... To be right, to be committed to what is most right, he must glory in that which is most glorious. That would be himself. And to treasure anything less, to treasure him any less, is sin. God doesn't sin. But what pleases God, what honors him is when people, the people that he created so that they might experience their best, their highest pleasure in all that he is. It's when they treasure him and they glory in him. But when people whom he made to experience their highest pleasure in him disregard him and ignore his infinite wisdom pay no attention to his infinite worth, fall short of pursuing their joy and satisfaction in all that he so generously offers himself to be for them, well, that's an infinite wrong. And he's ticked. He's rightly ticked. To fall short of treasuring him and delighting in him is an infinite fail. And that means it is right for an infinitely just and holy God to be ticked. In fact, if he wasn't ticked, if he wasn't infinitely committed to what is most right, namely the honor of his own reputation, the praise of his own glory, the treasuring and esteeming of his greatness, he he would be a sinner. Now, I know that all that's true, but I mean, who talks like that? You know, I was just like, I I felt like it was a massive fail and I was worthy of great blame. Um, How would somebody understand this? But but Jim, and that's not his real name, by the way. Jim is my (laughs) brother-in-law. We're not talking about him, we're talking about my neighbor. So Jim said, and this is great because... Not only is Jim not his real name, he actually was an aerospace engineer. So he's a sharp guy, and he says says to me after that long speech, he says, so let me get this straight. That means that sin is way more, way more than just getting sloshed at at Lucky's on Saturday night. And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, it's way more than that. And we all do it all the time. And that's why 
justification is necessary. And that's why self-justification is absolutely of no help whatsoever. There, there is no blaming. There's no making excuses. There's no hiding. The, the only justification that will do us any good is the justification that comes from somewhere else, someone else, and it is a gift. So second, the gift of justification. As the reformers made plain, justification of sinners before a righteous God is by grace alone. Look at verses 23 and 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. And and this grace is something that we dare not diminish or make cheap. You've heard heard me say this before, but grace is so often translated today in, in a way that means something like, you know, just go easy on me. Um, cut me some slack, you know, just, just let it go, give me some grace. The justification of God does not work that way. The blame for an infinite offense, the infinite offense of falling short of treasuring and honoring and delighting in an infinitely glorious God does not go away or is swept under the rug by simply him looking at us and saying, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. You, I get you. I understand your issues. I don't blame you. I won't judge you. You don't trust me. You don't esteem what I say. You don't value my wisdom. You blow me off most of the time. That's okay. I get you. I cut you some slack. I'll let it go. Loved ones, that is not what it means to experience God's grace. That is not what leaves us justified. The grace of justification lies in the fact that any removal of guilt or blame for our mind-bending disregard for God and all that he has promised to be for us is that the necessary steps to make it right begins entirely with him, it continues entirely with him, and is accomplished entirely by him. We bring absolutely nothing to the table. Wasn't me, doesn't work. If our eyes are open to recognize the glory, the infinite glory of God, it's because God opened them. If our hearts are made tender to own up to our own blameworthiness, it's because God made them tender. If we are humble enough to turn from self-justification and excuse-making and blame-shifting and self-pity and whatever else we do to comfort ourselves... It's because God made us so tender, humble, repentant. And if we feel any true desire for God or pleasure 
in God or hope in God, it is because God has stirred us to. It is all grace, that kind of grace. And it's all a gift. And someone paid for that gift. Because justification, thirdly, has a price. An infinitely holy and just God who just overlooks sin, lets it go, is a contradiction in terms. For God to be angry at sin is righteous. It's right. For him to let it go is wrong. Unrighteous. Unjust. Justice must be fulfilled. A price must be paid. And the price tag is blood. The blood of his own son. If anyone is justified by God, according to verses 24 and 25, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We don't, we don't use the word propitiation propitiation very often, but even though we don't use that word very often, the notion behind it is very, very much alive and well in our culture and in our times where just instant anger and outrage and offense just, and somebody is going to pay for what has offended us. The problem is, There's just nothing that will propitiate people anymore. To propitiate means to placate, to appease. If someone's angry, propitiating is is the act by which we get them to calm down. We were babysitting our grandson the other night, and he was angry, mainly, I guess, weren't really necessarily clear about this, but it seemed as though he wanted his mother and his mother was not there. And he was ticked. And this little device, uh, commonly known as a pacifier, was completely ineffective in propitiating Isaac's wrath. His cries, their intensity, their volume, their duration indicated that the offense he had taken was not about to be easily propitiated. He's just a product of our culture already. Um, And and, and as I was holding him, I, I, I I think I even said something to the effect, hey, cut me a little slack. (laughs) Give me a break, you know, give me some grace. But in an unwavering commitment to his own righteousness, he was having none of that. And um, propitiation costs something. You know, why, I, mean, I know I'm going to get a, a, a weird stare from this again, but why did Betty Haynes, 
leave her sister act and walk out on her budding romance with Bob Wallace in White Christmas. It's because she was offended that in her understanding, the great Wallace and Davis were scheming to make dear, honorable General Waverly look poor and pathetic enough and use him so that the men who loved him and served under him would come to the show and would ultimately pad the pockets of Wallace and Davis. This was a wrong. And to Betty, this wrong was so significant, so severe, that despite the best attempts by Bob and Phil and Judy to propitiate Betty's anger, she punished them by leaving the show. Now when you watch White Christmas, you'll have a whole different framework. But loved ones, God's wrath against sin is right. His great wrath against our countless failings to treasure his great worth is right. Justice must be done. Payment must be made. And it raises a question, does it not? What what could I do? What could I possibly do to propitiate God's anger toward me and my countless failings to pursue my joy in his infinite excellencies? What could I do to propitiate infinite wrath except to pay an infinite price? The price of infinite and eternal punishment. People who want to do away with the doctrine of hell don't get that. George Bailey came to the tragic conclusion that the removal of his shame would require nothing less than his own death. That's why he stood on that bridge in the snowstorm ready to jump in. Friends, There is a glorious alternative, a merciful alternative. The price of justification paid for by another. Infinite injustice propitiated by a sacrifice of infinite worth. A just and holy God takes all the sins of all his people and he places all those sins of all his people on his son, the God-man, our Lord Jesus, whom he has given. And then he punishes those sins in the body of his son on the cross. Debt we owed is paid off in full. We are sheltered. We are sheltered not by hiding. We are sheltered from this blame and wrath, not by denying or excusing or blame shifting. No, wrath remains. No wrath remains for us to face because we are justified in union with Jesus Christ who stood condemned, bore the blame, endured God's wrath, paid the price once for all in our place. Now, how do we come to experience such relief? By what means are we joined to Jesus? By what instrument might we enjoy the fullness of every spiritual blessing obtained through Christ's perfect life, 
sin-atoning death, and mighty resurrection. What means, what instrument, what would be the God-ordained way? Well, the instrument of justification is through faith alone, faith in Christ alone. The instrument by which we are joined to Jesus is faith. The instrument by which Jesus' perfect sinless life is now credited to me is faith. The instrument by which Jesus' anger propitiating, justice satisfying, sin atoning sacrifice is credited to you, to me, or to anyone is faith. Verse 24 says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. Verse 26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. This is what makes justification such an extraordinary gift. We are saved. We are forgiven. We are washed. We are counted holy and blameless in the sight of God. In union with Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. And the goal of rehearsing this astonishing truth. Especially during Advent. Is so that our appreciation and joy of what we now have in Christ. Might be renewed, refreshed, God. And God would get all the glory. And that leads us finally to the glory of justification. Because you see the ultimate purpose of God in our justification. Is that he would be treasured. That he would be glorified. That he would be honored, exalted in by his people in the way that he intended from the very, very beginning. And so verse 25 says, this, this putting forward of Christ as a wrath propitiating, sacrificial, substitutionary sacrifice. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that, to the end that, he might be seen to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So loved ones, God's great passion is to show the world what is most right. And there is no one and no thing more right than God. And therefore all of God's zeal is aimed at putting on display this matchless glory of himself. In all the fullness of his holiness, all the fullness of his justice, all the fullness of his wrath, all the fullness of his mercy. And it all comes together in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's great passion is that we might behold his glory and feel the pleasure of it. And exult in the beauty of it. And the wisdom of it. And though we have all sinned and daily fall short of treasuring it as we ought. God put forward his son as a gift. Given freely to all who will receive him. So that he might be shown as just. And as the justifier of each and every one who has faith in Jesus. And the intended effect of all that 
is that our fear of blame, our fear of shame, our fear of banishment, our fear of wrath would be gone. The intended effect is that our joy in Christ, our priceless treasure, would be renewed day by day. The intended effect is that you and I would wake up every morning with joy and peace in our hearts, knowing that we are absolutely and forever free from blame in the sight of God. And the intended effect is that our great God would get all the praise and all the glory for the sweetness of his saving, justifying grace. Let's pray. Your word, O Lord, has said that this this gospel of justification by grace through faith, this gospel is powerful. It's an expression of your power to save to rescue, to redeem, to deliver, to cleanse, to forgive, to justify. We pray that that power would be put on display again today. Not just just in these words, but in the actuality of a people experiencing you pouring yourself out upon them, turning hearts to trust you, moving hearts, awakening hearts to believe in you, to see you, to behold you, you working out your presence and power in such a way that we feel pleasure in you, we long for you. Show the power of your great salvation, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.